This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Hello, awesome listener. Rita Jablonski here. First, I apologize for the two-week hiatus in my episodes. It was not planned or on purpose. I was an invited speaker for the annual Gerontological Advanced Practice Nurses Association in Orlando this past weekend. GAPNA is one of my favorite conferences, and I love speaking to my Gero nurse peeps and hanging out with them and listening to their ideas and networking. But it always seems that the week or two before I travel, everything in my life goes cattywampus, and I scramble to meet deadlines and responsibilities, which means some things fall by the wayside. Unfortunately, this podcast was a casualty. I am so sorry, awesome listener. I know how I am. When I follow a certain podcast and the podcast releases an episode, say every Tuesday or every week, if all of a sudden there's no new episode, I get very disappointed. And again, I apologize. But I think you will find the weight was worth it because today's topic is dementia and Down syndrome. And it is one topic that is rarely covered in dementia podcasts or in books or in blogs. My interest in this topic is driven by the struggles of people in my community and in my workplace who have family members living with Down syndrome and who have been coming to me over the past couple of weeks with questions and concerns. So let's get started. First, I want to talk a little bit about chromosome 21. Everyone has two copies of chromosome 21. People living with Down syndrome, however, have three copies. On chromosome 21 lives a gene that makes something called amyloid precursor protein. Amyloid precursor protein has legitimate jobs in the brain. Amyloid precursor protein is involved with making and adapting new synapses, either making new synapses or modifying existing ones. Synapses are spaces where neurotransmitters are exchanged between neurons. Amyloid precursor protein has a role in what is called synaptic plasticity. And synaptic plasticity is really important. It is necessary for our adaptation to new experiences. And synaptic plasticity affects mood, thoughts, and behavior. If you've been told to change your approach or your attitude from looking at something like a glass half empty and saying, think of it as half full, 
That's an example of harnessing synaptic plasticity to reframe a situation. And by reframing it, you have more positive mood and you'll have different thoughts and perhaps more useful behavior. Another way to think about synaptic plasticity is how the brain changes existing neural circuits, how the brain can be rewired. This rewiring can be temporary and last nanoseconds, or it can become relatively more permanent and persist in that state for decades. Life experiences and how we are taught to interpret those life experiences definitely affect synaptic plasticity. For example, I was on a Southwest flight to Orlando from Birmingham Flight 2570 last Friday. Everyone was excited. You had all these families with kids with the Mickey Mouse hat. You had adults who were kids at heart with their Mickey Mouse hats. And the whole vibe was a party plane. And everyone was all excited. So everyone boards and we're all sitting there. It is a full flight. Every seat has a butt in it. And there were some seats that had a parent and a child, or rather an infant. So everyone had boarded, and the cabin crew were about to close the door when the pilot announces that, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there is severe weather, and the Orlando airport is not accepting anybody, not accepting any flights into the airport. It's temporarily closed to arrivals and departures until this weather passes. And when weather's involved, you don't know how long that's going to take. When the announcement went out that the flight was going to be delayed and the length of the delay was dependent on the behavior of the weather, I could feel the mood shift. There were families with young children on the flight, and I'm sure the parents began to panic at this news. The synapses of these parents were likely releasing lots of neurotransmitters associated with stress, like epinephrine and norepinephrine. The Southwest flight crew, and I feel so bad I didn't get anyone's name, but they immediately stepped into action. They engaged the passengers with a dad joke contest, trivia contest, and other humorous activities and commentary. In response to the Southwest crew's activities, the passengers on board we're experiencing real-time synaptic plasticity. Now, different neurotransmitters were being released, like gamma-aminobutyric acid, or GABA, which helps to reduce anxiety and irritability. Thanks to amyloid precursor protein, which helps with synaptic plasticity, Many of the brains of the passengers were rewiring and hopefully changing their thoughts from, oh crap, this is going to be awful, I hope I don't have to sit on my child, to maybe this won't be so bad. In fact, my favorite part of the flight, or what 
My favorite part of the delay was there was a young man on board who's who was ex- uh, celebrating his 10th birthday. And I thought this was cool. They dimmed the lights and they had everybody turn on their call lights and the call lights were blue. So the entire aisleway had blue lights and we all sang happy birthday to the young man and he quote blew out the candles and as he was blowing out the candles everybody was rapidly turning off their overhead call lights it was really cool and i think that really shifted the mood for the kids because the kids were all fascinated by this and all excited and then they had a trivia game for the kids where they played all these disney songs and the kids could they couldn't Well, the prizes they were giving out were free drink coupons, and they weren't going to give out the drink coupons to the young ones, although I'm sure there was a parent or two who thought about sipping or slipping an alcoholic beverage to a kid. Not saying they thought about it or they did it, but eh, maybe it crossed their mind. But here's the thing. I was watching all of this, and... Personally, I was sitting on a plane working on the material for this podcast, so my attitude about the delay was, cool, I'm going to get more stuff done. However, when the nice flight attendant was taking drink orders and I asked for a rum and coke, that's my big treat when I fly, and I didn't have a drink coupon, so I was handing her my credit card, she just smiled and shook her head, and I received a complimentary alcoholic beverage. My synapses briefly rewired and cranked out some dopamine, making me feel even more happy about a not-so-fun situation. Where am I going with this? I wanted to explain a very difficult concept, which is synaptic plasticity. And thanks to Southwest for giving me a great example. And from this example, you can see that amyloid precursor protein has job. Actually, it has many jobs, including brain development over the lifespan and recovery from brain damage. For reasons that are not yet fully understood, some people with two chromosome 21s secrete more amyloid precursor protein than the brain needs. And it is this oversupply and what the brain does with the oversupply that is linked to the production of amyloid plaques, one of the culprits that cause nerve death in Alzheimer's dementia. People with Down syndrome have three copies of chromosome 21, and it is thought that their brains make way more amyloid precursor protein, which is one theory for why people living with Down syndrome are at higher risk for developing early-onset Alzheimer's dementia. There are other genes that can both increase the risk for Alzheimer's dementia or act in a protective fashion and decrease the risk for Alzheimer's dementia, and many of these genes live on chromosome 21 and live on other genes. And it's super complicated, and that's why there's so much research being done trying to figure out what is, what is the interplay among genes. I think it's too simplistic to simply say this one gene is the bad guy. There's more research and understanding into the interaction among 
multiple genes. And I am presenting this in a simplistic way so that it's understandable. But it's the presence of many other genes that can be both protective or not protective that may help explain why some people living with Down syndrome may present with dementia at earlier ages than others. Another little distinction I want to make that may sound petty, but it is important. There was a difference between Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's dementia. Alzheimer's disease means that beta amyloid plaques can be seen using special imaging techniques in someone's brain. In other words, if I have a special brain scan with special radioactive compounds that attach to beta amyloid plaques, if I have this scan, a neurologist can look at my brain and say, oh, wow, there are sections of the brain where there are these clumps, these plaques. Rita has Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's dementia means I'm showing evidence of cognitive impairment likely due to the presence of these plaques. That is, Alzheimer's dementia means that the person is showing cognitive problems, problems with memory and problems doing tasks now that they were able to do in the past. Nearly all adults living with Down syndrome have Alzheimer's disease, that is, they have the plaques by age 40. They have clumps of amyloid protein in their brains. One study found that these plaques began forming in people living with Down syndrome in their late teens. Signs of Alzheimer's dementia can be seen in people living with Down syndrome beginning around age 30. However, the prevalence of Alzheimer's dementia really starts to rise from age 40 onwards. Cognitive problems affect over half of people living with Down syndrome who are between the ages of 40 and 50. Cognitive problems or Alzheimer's dementia are seen in 70% of people in the 60 to 69 age bracket. Alzheimer's dementia is evident in 100% of people living with Down syndrome over the age of 70. The next question you may be asking yourself is, how do I know if my family member with Down syndrome is experiencing dementia? And that's tricky because many family members are unsure if it's the disease or if it's the, well, the Down syndrome disease or is it the Alzheimer's dementia? Usually, in people living without Down syndrome, Alzheimer's dementia is diagnosed a variety of ways. First, by taking a careful history from family members, asking about new behavior, people forgetting doctor appointments, making mistakes, paying bills that they never would have made in the past. And I don't mean forgetting to pay an unusual bill, 
or forgetting or making a late credit card payment, but forgetting to say pay the uh, taxes on the house, something that has dire consequences. In addition to the history, one can administer screening tests like the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Tool and other strategies, other assessments to look for deficits that indicate there's some type of cognitive issue going on. One can also get spinal fluid via a lumbar puncture, also known as a spinal tap from someone, and you can look at levels of amyloid protein and different biomarkers that indicate Alzheimer's disease. And also, we can look at brain images that are taken from MRIs, and there are specific shrinkage patterns that are suggestive of Alzheimer's disease. It is challenging to diagnose dementia in people with intellectual debility. Uh, can't talk, sorry. It is challenging to diagnose dementia in people living with intellectual disabilities because the cognitive tests that are commonly used were not developed for people with intellectual disabilities. There are some promising new screening tools that rely on observations by the family caregiver. People living with Down syndrome do have amyloid markers and other biomarkers from their spinal fluid that are consistent with levels in people without Down syndrome and that suggest Alzheimer's dementia. Recent studies indicate that people living with Down syndrome show many of the general MRI shrinkage patterns that are seen in people who have dementia but do not have to have Down syndrome. And one of those patterns includes shrinkage of the hippocampi. We can measure the volume or the size of the hippocampi on an MRI. Generally, the smaller the hippocampi, the more severe the dementia. However, even though you see the general pattern, the current measures used to stage the amount of hippocampi shrinkage and to correlate the amount of hippocampi shrinkage to the dementia, have, those measures have not been adjusted for people living with Down syndrome. Research is being conducted in these areas to better target sensitive biomarkers that can be used to definitively diagnose Alzheimer's dementia in people living with Down syndrome. From a behavioral perspective, depression and apathy and withdrawal are usually the earliest indicators of dementia. Also, changes in personality is another big sign that a person living with Down syndrome may be experiencing dementia. For people with Down syndrome who are verbal, you may notice that your family member's ability to produce and comprehend speech start to decline. You may hear more hesitations and pauses in speech and notice that the speech is becoming more disorganized and that your family member is having more problems finding words. 
other signs of dementia in people living with Down syndrome do include agitation, repetitive speech and repetitive movements, hyperactivity, sleep problems, lack of cooperation, and auditory hallucinations. That's hearing voices. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I return, I want to talk about treatment in this population. The United States Guidelines for Treating Dementia in People with Intellectual Disabilities, including Down syndrome, are vague and recommend evaluating treatment on a case-by-case basis. The UK, on the other hand, is pretty clear about starting traditional Alzheimer's medications. Acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, when the signs of dementia first arise, and memantine, when the dementia worsens. For those of you tuning in for the first time and starting with this episode, acetylcholine is an important neurochemical involved with memory and other brain functions. Brain cells, also called neurons, secrete acetylcholine, also known as brain juice. Some cells then secrete a chemical called acetylcholinesterase, which breaks down the acetylcholine into basic chemicals. The neurons slurp up the basic chemicals, recycle them, and produce fresh new acetylcholine, similar to a magical coffee maker in your local diner that always has fresh coffee, no sludge. Your brain always wants fresh acetylcholine. In all brains, the amount of acetylcholine is directly affected by the number of neurons. Now, I want to give an example, and it's just theoretical. It's, it's for illustration purposes only. Acetylcholine and brain neurons or number neurons don't work exactly this way. But I just want to give you an example. So let's say my brain loses 10% of my neurons the level of circulating acetylcholine would also drop by 10%. Medications like denepazil, trade name Aricet, slow down the secretion of acetylcholinesterase so that the brain cells break down and recycle less of the acetylcholine. Using my previous example, if I start taking denepazil, and while I take denepazil, I lose 10% of my neurons, I may only experience a 5% drop in my brain juice, a 5% drop in my acetylcholine levels. These medications do not stop the loss of neurons. The amyloid plaques continue to get bigger and surround and kill neurons much like certain vines will cover trees and eventually choke and kill these trees. Acetylcholinesterase inhibits, excuse me, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors slow down the loss of abilities temporarily. Eventually, the extra circulating acetylcholine fades away 
and the levels of brain juice slowly drop down, but always stay a little higher than they would normally be if the person was not taking these medications. If you stop giving someone with dementia their denepazil for a week or so, the levels of circulating acetylcholine will plummet to match the current number of available neurons. Even though the UK guidelines support the use of another drug, memantine, trade name Namenda in this population, some of the research looking at the use of memantine in people with Down syndrome have not shown any difference between memantine and placebo in slowing down cognitive decline. The same is true with studies examining the effect of denepazil and other acetylcholine inhibitors in this population. The results are not consistent. Some of the inconsistent results may be due to the design of the studies, the use of different dosages of acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, and the use of different outcome measurements. This is very similar to research when acetylcholinesterase inhibitors were first being studied in people living with dementia, I want to say around 25 years ago, our ability to accurately diagnose people living with Alzheimer's dementia versus other types was not as refined as it is now. There were study design issues where researchers would study the outcomes of people receiving denepazil for, say, three months or six months, maybe not for a real long time. And some of the results in which these researchers found conflicting results, in one study it said the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors worked well. In another study, it said NAP, placebo, and the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors had the same outcomes. A lot of these design issues affected interpretation of results. And I think because our knowledge of dementia in people living with Down syndrome is still relatively in its infancy compared to what we know or what we have known in the past, I'm wondering if some of the inconsistent results really are due more to study design than the drug itself. That's just something to think about. There have also been studies examining the use of vitamin E in this population. The studies that I read did not report, nor did they capture any relationship between vitamin E and slowing down of cognitive decline. That doesn't mean there'll be a study next year or next week that said, hey, look, there is a relationship. It's just the studies to date aren't showing that giving people vitamin E to reduce oxidative stress isn't necessarily showing evidence of efficacy. Although I have not conducted any research in this population, I think that based on the brain changes that occur, some of my non-drug strategies may be helpful. 
For example, you may notice that your family member always loved specific social activities, but lately they become irritable and overwhelmed in these same situations that they used to enjoy. Instead of stopping their participation in these social activities, it may help to limit the time spent at these social activities, let's say arriving earlier when there are fewer people, and then leaving before the activity really ramps up and your family member starts to feel overwhelmed. In cases of social activities like participation in religious activities, many faith communities have different times for services. So you often have the early morning service that may be attended by fewer people. It may be quicker versus some of the more complicated, that's not the right word, but some of the, uh, some of the busier religious services, which happens say later in the morning, like 11 o'clock or the, or there's noon service that has the children's choir and a lot more activity and the service may be longer in duration and may be more heavily attended. So if you always went to the 11 o'clock service, you may find that perhaps going to the earlier service may still meet the need for social activity, but with less stress on the person living with Down syndrome and who is experiencing dementia. You may also find that you can use even simpler one-step commands to help your family member get dressed or do other activities. We tend to speak in very long sentences. So let's say you're helping your adult child or your sibling get dressed. And in the past, you could simply say, go put your shirt on. Now, your family member isn't able to do that. They may be looking at the shirt, thinking, what is a shirt? They may be confused about which step to go to do first. So you may have to even break it down into smaller steps and say something like, okay, put this over your head first. And while you're telling them, you may also find it helpful to layer on what's called gestures and pantomime. As you're using simpler sentences, you're also acting out the activity you want them to do. So you may say, okay, put your shirt on over your head and as they're doing it, you're mimicking putting a shirt on over your head. You may even want to get a shirt and put the shirt over your head to show them what you want them to do. I've actually had family members dress with the person living with dementia to kind of have them mimic what you want them to do. That's a strategy. It can't hurt. But because your family member is experiencing more problems comprehending spoken language, that's why the gestures in pantomime may become more useful. And like I said, even having your own shirt or your own socks or your own shoes and demonstrating what you want your family member to do, it is going to make getting dressed a lengthier and more complicated activity. But here's the thing, 
when people stop doing an activity, the neural networks, the neurons, start to die even faster. If you don't use it, you lose it. It may be worth your while or worth the time of, if you have a caregiver helping out, to engage in these types of Simon Says or demonstrative examples to help slow down the loss of functional abilities. It is my hope that existing dementia clinics become more knowledgeable about diagnosing and managing dementia in people living with Down syndrome. Although I have yet to work with a patient in my clinic who lives with Down syndrome, I believe it is a matter of when, not if, these individuals are going to arrive. Meanwhile, I will continue to keep current on the research and on the dementia and Down syndrome literature so that I can help to the best of my ability when that day occurs. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast because together we are going to make dementia our bitch. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.